progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, where today, Monday, uh, September 27th, it is, what, 90 degrees. Okay, welcome to the new climate era. Hey, remember, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, and better yet, make a monthly pledge of whatever amount you can afford. Thanks again to the local businesses who help sponsor this program, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned and specialty grocery food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can also order groceries online, and Gateway also offers a catering and floral service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks to uh, Groovy Goods as well. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. All right, so welcome again uh, to the program. And uh, here's our lineup for today with Dr. Charles Goldman co-hosting with me. We're going to be talking about uh, California's law that would penalize the removal of a condom during sex. Yes, that's Dr. Goldman's idea. We're going to go with that. We're also going to be talking about indigenous resistance and perspective that are becoming more and more central and important to the uh, efforts to push back against climate change. Uh, we're going to welcome Carol Muffet to the program. We're going to be talking about CO2 pipelines. He's with the Center for International Law. And to wrap it all up, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to compare Bitcoin with another idea that we call Seedcoin. But first of all, I want to take, uh, uh, take a second to welcome Charles to the program. Charles, how you doing? Oh, good, Ed. I want to kick it off by talking about the big rally recently to commemorate the January 6th riot. The rally was supposed to celebrate what happened and also to call out the injustice of uh, how some of the 600 people who were arrested are being treated in the judicial system. The whole thing was a flop. Uh, they had what? Like 300 400, people, four, something like 300 that. 300 people. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know... It, they were expecting thousands. Uh, there are actually more police officers. Well, if the, if the 1,500 people weren't in jail from the uh, <laughs> original seminal event, they would have had more. <laughs> yeah, but not the, not the tens of thousands they were expecting, right? right. And uh, again, there were more law enforcement officials and media there than there were protesters. But this hasn't stopped the... But this was the biggest crowd ever. For a January 6th riot rally. Yeah. Post, yeah. Commemorating the rally, right. And it was they brought Sean Spicer out to say that. What was it called? That. Justice for J6? Yes, Justice yeah, for J6. Which, um, which could mean lots of things. But uh, <laughs> the, um, so the interesting thing is, despite that rally being a total flop, despite the, what, hours and hours of video footage showing the violence, showing what happened, you've got... You've got Donald Trump supporters still insisting, and more and more, more and more stridently all the time, that this is this was uh, that the presence at the, at the U.S. Capitol on January 20, January six was a heroic act. Well, here here's some samples. Uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina says those arrested are political prisoners. Senator Ron Johnson, who clearly has lost his marbles, of Wisconsin. <laughs> Described the attackers as people that love this country. They truly respect law enforcement. I, I guess beating them up with flagstaffs doesn't yeah. count. Yeah, I wonder, I, wonder if the, I wonder if the law enforcement officials that were killed or injured or Oh, wait, wait, wait. we'll get to that. Would... Well, then, of course, Tucker Carlson, as despicable as they come, said that the death of Ashley Babbitt was a execution. Uh, now, that was the woman who the uh, police officer fatally shot. As she was climbing right, through yeah. the door into where they were protecting the Congress, which included both Republicans and Democrats, um, with a backpack on. I guess they should have waited until she got through to find out whether the backpack had a bomb, had in, a bomb in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, J.D. Vance. So what did Carlson say? That, oh, it was an execution. Oh, execution. And now they're allowed to kill unarmed women who, pro who protest the regime. Uh, J.D. Vance, a Republican Senate candidate in Ohio, went the uh, Trump route. There were some bad apples, but most of the people there were super peaceful. Um, and then, of course, and then, of course, um, we have, you know, Paul Gozar, who no one knows what happened to him, a dentist who seems to have completely gone off the deep end. Paul uh, Gozar. No, he's never from, heard of him. Yeah, he's a rep Would not want Arizona. to work on my teeth. Uh, he accused law enforcement of harassing peaceful patriots and law-abiding U.S. citizens. Oh, was he talking about some of the uh, uh, BLM rallies? Yeah, oh, God. 
Then, of course, we have, uh, you know, the usual uh, kind of Alex Jones types, you know, who uh, claim that actually Michael Fanone, the uh, police officer, the Washington police officer who suffered a heart attack during the yeah. uh, right. you know, during the event, was lying about it and was a crisis actor. This was just like, of course, Alex Jones claiming that got, those were got, actors we, we, playing dead children at Sandy Hook. Okay, wow. So this, this, <laughs> it's, it's Julie Kelly, is that who it was? Yeah. Who is that? Julie Kelly. Julie Kelly. I mean, who is that? that who I knows? I, I mean, something called American <laughs> okay. Greatness. I'm sure it's another, so I'm, I'm another guessing, front organization for the Heritage Foundation. I'm guessing that Marjorie Taylor Greene, the uh, the illustrious uh, state representative from, where is it, Georgia, had mm-hmm. to weigh in, on, weigh in on this as well. Right. And she said, the people who breached the Capitol on January 6th are being abused. So what struck wow. me about this, this is perfect because this is the lost cause, Right. You know, the um, the idea that quickly came up after the South lost the Civil War, that um, it wasn't really about slavery. It was about states' rights. And they, they eulogized and, you know, fetishized and, and, you know, created heroes of traitors mm. to the United States. Um, this, is the, this is exactly the same kind of process that's going on. You know, and just as now, just as then, it was pretty obvious that these things were not, in this case, peaceful. And certainly the war that cost hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides was not being fought over a a vague notion of states' rights. It was being fought over the abolition of slavery, you know, and... um, We're we're no strangers to revisionist history in this country. That's true. But I'm, when I'm, you know, but again, this is this is happening, you know, at light speed to the point that whereas immediately after the event that people watched on TV, seventy percent of Republicans said that this was a uh, not a patriotic act, and now we're back to in July, what fifty percent of them are saying that um, these people were patriots, uh, you know, against an oppressive, ra- basically an oppressive regime. The same people who watched on TV what happened. Yeah. You know, do these people never ask so, why the great leader was behind a full full sheets of bulletproof glass? You mean Trump? Trump. Yeah. Right. When he gave his speech, was you know they was they were you know slabs of bulletproof glass in front of him that completely protected him, not the little like pieces that they put over the the critical area. Do you think he'll be similarly protected when he comes to Iowa in a couple of weeks? Oh, of course not. No, I mean he's why not? Why, why, well, because he's it, not it, expecting that kind of violence. I mean, this was this was obviously they were expecting violence. There were Iowans at the January sixth rally. No, I understand. I yeah. understand. No, but but, I, the, but of course it was really Antifa that started it all, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, according it's, to some of the detractors. It, it, it's unbelievable, you know, and, and, this, and you know, the lost cause histo- revisionist history of the Civil War leads to, you know, Jim Crow, which was the response against the change in social order that was the federal troops were trying to put in place. What bothers me is that, is that you know, you've got more and more uh, rank-and-file Republicans that are either, either choosing to remain silent on what happened on January 6th or they're, um, they're supporting the, the lie. And you've got uh, folks like Liz Cheney. I mean, I've never been a Liz Cheney fan, but I feel I feel badly for her. I mean, she's being she's being uh, you know attacked, and she 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 well could lose that seat. I mean, I think there's a very good chance of that, uh, yeah. that seat going the other way. I mean, President George W. Bush, again, not a huge fan. Sorry, but uh, here he is speaking truthfully about this and getting although getting, indirectly, getting he doesn't really call it out. He he. He talks about right-wing extremism, and we all know what he's talking about. But he doesn't name. It. Uh, he's he comes he he's uh, he's clear enough that Trump pushed back against him this past mm. week with a tweet. Well, you know that. <laughs> well, the equivalent of a tweet, whatever Trump could the, do. The faux days. survey, the faux recount in Arizona ended up showing that there was actually more votes for Biden than were counted, and less yeah. votes for Trump. Than so were I, I'm surprised that that, that the uh, the the firm that was commissioned to do that, forgetting their name right now, somebody signal. I'm, fr- I'm surprised they actually released those numbers. Knowing how bad they were, it was something ninjas. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, yeah, ninjas, right, right, right. right. So, yeah, yeah, but cyber ninjas, cyber ninjas, and then when they reported that on Fox News, uh, the viewers went crazy. And what way? 
uh, you know, calling up saying they had to get whoever it was who was reporting it off because he was wasn't telling the truth. <laughs> no, I mean this is this, this is cult thinking. I mean the the facts are right in front of you. The video is right in front of you. You know, they were yeah. carrying mace. They were carrying you know truncheons. They were using the flagpoles to beat on the the cops. One of them you was know, wearing the horns, horns on his head. Uh, yeah, well the horns on his head guy is has a psychiatric illness. Yeah, but he scared me. But. <laughs> I would have run. <laughs> no, I mean this is this is not horn on head yeah. guy coming. Take off. This this is just it's nothing different. It's it's just the way that again we ended up with the statues. All those statues that are being dragged down, they weren't put up no. to eulogize the Confederate generals. They were put up during Jim Crow to tell black people in the South once again that white people were going to take charge. Yeah. You know, and this is this is just all the same, and it's right from that racist. Yeah. You know, kind so of I mean, it's, it's interesting to see where the Republican Party is going to go on this because they've got uh, not just the leadership, but the the base is now buying into all this misinformation, yeah. and they are they are attacking candidates that are traditional conservative Republicans. I mean, Ronald Reagan would not survive a Republican primary for any office. Yes, he would. Well, I doubt it. Uh, it well, <laughs> well, I, I don't think I really don't think Liz Cheney is going to going to survive. I think um, I think you're seeing more and more people coming out with more and more extreme statements, and that's what's ruling the, the day in the Republican Party. Hey, Charles, i got to run to a break here. Uh, let's take a short break, folks. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to be talking about a um, California law, which uh, would be the first in the nation that would penalize the removal of condoms. Dr. Goldman will be helping to weigh in on this conversation in a minute when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the program, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Hey, remember what you hear on this program, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations, and you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor of the Fallon Forum. Check out our website or email me at ed at fallonforum.com for details. Thanks also to our business partners, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures great and small for over 30 years. Our cat loves her, our chickens, I think they love her. And learn more, you can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by calling Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. Okay, so earlier this month, out of California, where you never know, what, you never know what's gonna happen out of California, the state legislature unanimously passed a bill making it illegal to non-consensually non uh, remove a condom during sex. California would be the first state to enact such a law if Governor Newsom signs it. But there are several countries, including Germany, Switzerland, and uh, Great Britain, who have already prosecuted uh, people, uh, prosecuted this sort of act as a sexual assault. And we've got a doctor in the house today. So we're going to turn to Charles Goldman. Get your thoughts on this. What do you think, Charles? Well, just for a little background, um, this, this law came up um, in the wake of an article that was published from Yale University Law School 
Um, I believe also the same law school that the original article on critical race theory uh, came out of. Uh, so I don't think they'll be teaching this in the elementary <laughs> and junior high schools. Anyway, um, basically it was an article entitled Rape Adjacent. Rape and Adjacent. Rape Adjacent, right. And the, the article's um, premise was that um, research had shown that about 12% of women and ten, uh, had been victims of this and 10% of men had admitted they did it. Wait, wait. Tw- so, so the deal is, is that basically there's an agreement to wear a condom during sex. And at some point, the man takes the condom off and then reinserts himself. And obviously that increases the risk to, the, to his partner to sexually transmitted disease as well as pregnancy. Um, 10%, 12%. 12% of women wow. said they were victims of it, and okay. 10% of men admitted that they did do it. Um, and so the, the article's premise was that this should be a tort, that this is a form of sexual assault, mm-hmm. and that there should be some remedy. Um, it's certainly a lie, one, one with serious consequences potentially. That, yes, I think that's yeah. pretty clear. So the, you know, the, the, initial, the initial push was actually to criminalize it. Right. Now, um, there was a lot of pushback against that, uh, not the least of which because it would, it would create a much higher standard of proof uh, that you would have to achieve. And this, is, this would be a very difficult, I mean, case to, I mean, whereas any form of rape is, yeah, he said, she said, um, oftentimes, right. this would be even worse in terms of how would you be able to decide. So how did, they, how did they get around that challenge? Well, so so the, the, the legislator who suggested initially the criminalization, uh, instead in, in this bill, um, basically added to civil law, therefore making it uh, something you could bring a civil case against. And, and as we know, for instance, in the OJ case, um, he was not found guilty of a criminal violation, but he lost in civil court to the Goldmans um, in terms of uh, that the, the jury in the civil uh, case believed that O.J. did it. Right. Um, but the standard is uh, more likely than not in a civil case, i.e. 50 point, you know, zero, 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 however many you know, decimal points you want to carry it out to. Now, is there, uh, versus beyond reasonable doubt. Now, is there any is there any data on whether this ever happens to a man, for example? Um, the literature is most is about heterosexual sex. Okay. Um, clearly, you know, in in the case of a man or in the case of of trans people, there would be a similar risk, certainly in terms of sexual in in terms of STDs hmm. by removal of a condom. So there would be no reason why you couldn't make that argument. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I, I guess the question becomes, how would these cases be adjudicated? You know, what, what is, it, it's going to be someone says this happened and somebody said, no, it didn't happen. Well, how is it, how is it adjudicated in, uh, in Europe where the that, you know, that I don't know, books? that I don't know, but you know, and, and is it a criminal case there or is it, is it civil? In those cases, I face? believe it's, it's criminal. It, it, I believe so, but I can't say for sure. Mm. Um, and there are two other states, I think Wisconsin and I'm blanking on the other state that is considering similar statute. Um, So, you know, while we're hearing, of course, about all the states that want to, you know, create vigilantes for stopping abortion, uh, there's also this this little subgroup of uh, laws going about too. Here's a question. Uh, Who is, uh, in California, maybe you know, maybe you don't, Mm -hmm. who is registered in, in opposition to, who's lobbying against that statute, that proposed statute? Um, I don't see why anybody would. It did pass unanimously, so that's an indication that's correct. that probably no one lobbied against it. But. Right, but I don't think you have an organized uh, opposition because I'm not sure this is the kind of law people would want to be yeah. remembered but for certainly, being against. Certainly Tucker Carlson could find a way to come out against it. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, the, the kind of people who would be against this would be the people who want the government out of the bedroom, Right. Except, of course, they want to be in your uterus because they're probably the same people who would say that abortion should be, right. you know, eradicated. Um, so selective libertarianism. Right. Um, but no, I mean, obviously, it, it, I, w- I was surprised by the lack of commentary 
on this. And that's where we come in. Well, but I'm just saying in terms of usually, you know, it, it was published in the Times on the 10th. And, you know, I would have expected there would have been right. you know, a lot of Right. It has to do, it has of, to do with sex. It should, be, right. it should be all over the place yeah. you know, with the way things often work here. But no. But Why not? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I, 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 I assume, though, of course, that it will be something that certain Republicans will bring out to bang on the Democrats for their— Really? Oh, yeah. How, how are they going to—I mean, it, pa- it passed unanimously. That means re- I mean, Republicans, conservative Republicans in California voted for it. Yeah, but I— We assume, I, Gary, we assume Gavin Newsom is going to sign it. I can't imagine why he wouldn't. Right. Um, we assume it's not going to be challenged with a lawsuit. Um, no, I mean I don't think there's anything about it that's challengeable because right. it's it it it's just adding to civil law, right? You know, it's adding a tort, just right. as, as this article you know kind of suggested. Um, but it's just I I just found it intriguing that this is going on, you know, and this is the kind of thing that oftentimes Republicans are able to bang Democrats over the heads with because right. it's the culture that a lot of their you know the Republican. Um, Political. It's it's the nanny state again, finding a way into your bedroom, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Well, again, again, the same purveyors of that philosophy don't have any trouble with the, uh, with uh, working their way into a woman's right to make a choice about abortion. Well, I think but, if, if if it was presented as a criminal charge, that's exactly how it would be attacked, which it's mm-hmm. the nanny state invading your privacy, um, on the same basis that they argue against you know mandatory vaccinations and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think as a civil tort, people don't get as riled up about that idea because I'm not sure they totally understand the difference. So you think this will be something other states look at and look at uh, following suit on? I mean, you mentioned Wisconsin, but yeah, I, I, I think that I think it will be, and Wisconsin is certainly not a rapidly democratic no. state um, <laughs> in any way. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it will be. I think it. Twelve percent of women—that's a lot of women. And again, as a physician, um, you think this makes uh, make, makes good sense? It's certainly it's certainly not an area of uh, medical practice where you where you work in as a cancer surgeon. But your 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 impression is this is a good idea. Well, I, I certainly think it's much more substantive in some ways than the issue of what is no. You know, I think if if there's an agreement to wear a condom, I mean, this is not that you won't even put it on. I mean, it's called stealthing because you take it off at some point, unbeknownst to your partner. Sneakily, right, right. Right. So, you know, you've made an agreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've created, you know, a a contract of a sort, and you break that contract just because you feel like it. Yeah. You know. Um, So, I mean, I think that makes it much more easily understandable as reprehensible than sometimes, you know, what is no, what is not consent. But this is clearly a form of non-consent. And you think the civil approach works better than the criminal approach? I think the civil approach is much is yeah. is much uh, more palatable to people. I'm not sure how the how a, a criminal approach would work, and I think it would make it much more unpopular. Yeah, and harder harder to follow through with in any kind of legal action. Absolutely, because yeah. the, the you know it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt, and what it's going to come down to is who is the jury going to believe? And we know that that has a lot to do with what does the person, what do the people involved look like, you know, both right. in terms of aesthetics as well as skin color, et cetera. So, mm. you know, in a civil case, it's it, the proof is, is a little bit easier to make. Yeah. But you're still, still going to be in the situation of who do you believe. Well, we're going to mix it up a bit. And when we come back from a short break, we're going to be talking about an, an angle on climate change that, again, may not get all as much attention as it needs, but... The uh, fact that uh, indigenous communities who have been speaking out very boldly and broadly against the expansion of pipelines, for example, and other um, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure, have really had a big impact. Uh, we'll look at a, a study coming out of um, the Indigenous Environmental Network that shows uh, just how big of an impact those communities are having. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. 
At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You can support this alternative program, folks, by sponsoring the program. Check it out on the Fallon Forum website. Thanks to the local businesses who also partner with us and also to our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, building rural urban coalitions to address climate change and fighting the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes, workshops, farm tours at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, Charles Goldman and I with you here, folks. Um, a recent report by the Indigenous Environmental Network uh, uh, partnering with Oil Change International, and, and by the way, Oil Change International is a very pro-climate action organization, interesting name. Uh, the two worked together on some research that found that Indigenous-led resistance to a wide range of fossil fuel projects that was both in the United States and in Canada, that uh, in recent years, over the past 10 years or so, uh, that those efforts have stopped or delayed an amount of greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to about one-fourth of the annual U.S. and Canadian emissions. Uh, that's pretty significant. Charles, you've seen the report as well. I did. What do you think? Well, I, 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 the reason I, I thought about this after seeing that was you know, I was always struck by your experience when you did the walk. Which one? The one across the country. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, not, not, not the one through Iowa. You know, in, in terms of you had a lot of interactions with indigenous peoples. Yeah. Um, Especially in New Mexico. Yeah. And I, I, so I thought, I, I found that very interesting, you know, that, um, you know, and, and it seems to me it comes from two things. One, um, the history of, Tending to the environment, which, to be perfectly honest, is somewhat of a myth. It's not entirely true that indigenous peoples were all that adept at tending to the environment. Um, you know, the, it, well, they certainly did a heck of a lot better job than we've done. Well, but they also had less population concentration, and when they did have population concentration, the ancient peoples ran into some of the same issues of how to maintain an environment uh, for concentrations of people. Um, you know, there, there's, there's clearly evidence of pre-Columbian appearance, uh, collapse of several large cultures, some of the Mound people and the Mississippians and that, that it's, it's not entirely clear it wasn't from environmental collapse and not disease. But what I'm saying is it's, it, they certainly are much more, uh, as a group, the indigenous peoples are much more conscious of stewardship of the land. Um, well, I, I like I like what uh, Dallas Goldtooth, and I know mm -hmm. Dallas. He's uh, he's the uh, head of the uh, uh, Indigenous Environmental Network. Mm -hmm. I like his quote uh, on this subject. Um, uh, you know, it's more than just stopping fracking development and pipelines, and it's more than just developing clean energy. It's about actually fundamentally changing how we see the world itself. And I think that's spot on. It's not we we're not gonna we're not gonna get through the climate crisis by just Switching to wind and solar, we're not going right. To I, and I, yeah, I think that's a great that is a great quote, and and also it, it's interesting because that that's something that that's kind of you know different in that indigenous people do see the possibility of harmonizing with our earth, with Mother Earth, right? Whereas you know, white people philosophy is Gaia philosophy, which is that the Earth just wants to essentially get rid of us. <laughs> because we're, you know, we're a horrible blight on the earth, um, you know, or the other, the other, you know, supremacist philosophy, which is that, you know, we have dominion over the Conquer earth. Conquer and subdue. We are, right. The, the word was used was yeah. dominion, not harmony. Um, but the other thing, of course, is, is that the invisibility of a lot of what 
happens in the name of consumption is is played out upon the indigenous people because they live where the mining goes on. Well, certainly not, ex- know, not where, exclusively. I mean, no. we have we have four hundred miles of pipeline running across. No, the I understand that, but they're much more prone to be poisoned yeah. by the projects that the people who you know have to have the latest iPhone uh, the day it's out just want to ignore. You know, and they're the ones where uranium mining, uh, you know, uranium mining goes on. Who, you know, where they want to hand out, hand off two thirds of Grand Escalante, you know, so that the mining companies can get in there. So they're the ones who pay the price of progress, and they don't in any way participate in the benefits. Yeah. So, you know, and, and as we know, I and mean, with the Keystone Pipeline. The Keystone Pipeline, the whole project came about because the First Nations in, in the western side of Canada said there's no way that line is coming across. British Columbia. British Columbia. Right. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the U.S., the Midwest. They won't mind. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but, I mean, to be fair, too, the generally speaking, the population of Alberta, the Providence where the tar sands are, are mined, they've been supportive of that, again, for the jobs, largely. Yeah. I mean, and if somebody really wants to see what it does to the environment to do these kinds of moronic ideas of taking tar with superheated water that requires a huge amount of energy to heat mm-hmm. it so that you can solubilize mm-hmm. the tar and see what it, what it leaves the environment looking yeah. like and how much yeah. water it leaves to drink after you're done wasting the water that way. Yeah. Yeah. Look, go look at pictures of that. Well, we'll see. You know, we, uh, when, you, when, I, when, you said, when you mentioned the march, I asked which one very seriously because mm-hmm. I've organized, let's see, one, two, three, four, five marches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the last two have been in, co- in coordination with our native allies. Uh, and some of the local... That's true, in all fairness, that's right. Yeah, some uh, of the local yeah, Meskwaki people right. have, have, led, uh, have led those um, marches. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and actually, the last march was a, was a kind of a coalition effort where there were, there were native, uh, native people from all over came to be a part of that one. And uh, yeah, they, they, their, their, their perspective on the, inter- the, the, the connectivity between all life is, is um, antithetical to rampant capitalism. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... Um, that's got to change. It's got to change. And that's one of our biggest hurdles in getting anything to happen on climate change is getting people to realize that, hey, the, the foundation on which we've established our, our wealth and good fortune and overall well-being is not working. It's not sustainable. It's lasting for a while. It's lasted well for a while. It's starting to fall apart. Are we going to let it go to the point where it falls apart completely? Or are we going to have the wisdom and courage to try to intervene at some point, like now, and uh, come up with a new approach to how we live with each other and on the land? Well, you know, we, we've talked before about, you know, the sort of geologic history of the Earth and the climate history of the Earth. And this is actually one of the most temperate times right. ever in the history of the Earth. Also, one of the most sedate times in terms of large forces like volcanism and glaciation and other things. And we've wasted it, you know, by burning fossil fuels to the point that we're changing the climate yeah. to being extraordinarily, you know, uncomfortable yeah. and unsustainable. You know, the other thing that Dallas says in, in that piece is that, that when you're confronting climate, the climate crisis, you're inherently confronting systems of colonization and white supremacy as well. Right, right. Yep. And, and, you know, when you look at the history of colonization, not just by the United States, but, you know, by the, the European powers for the most part, it has generally been about extraction of resources that they wanted, right. but they didn't want to pay for. Right. Yeah. You know, and the white supremacy aspect is because it was the belief that it was okay if you were a European. Manifest destiny. Right. Yeah. Manifest destiny here in the United States to, to take these things because these people were just brutes. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's yeah. exa- exactly how they were referred to. And that's, you know, that's not, that's pretty much consistent with how the English regarded the Irish. Well, you bring this up every time. I understand well, that. And but, it's true. Yeah. I mean, you look at, look at the, I mean, I, and, 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 I, and I, look, I look at the way that the Irish lived on the land. Yeah, there was brutality back uh, in a pre-British history, but mm-hmm. there was a lot more, uh, a, lot, a much, much higher level of natural living um, and, and a much more... Um, uh, I mean, the, 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 the Druid perspective on reality was much more akin to the Native American perspective than it is to the Judeo-Christian tradition of domination. Mm-hmm. So, 
So yeah, I'm sorry for bringing it up every time, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know who else I've heard bring this up? Uh, um, uh, Tucker Carlson. No, no, no. Uh, well, one of the one of the native leaders leaders at Standing Rock um, would bring this up too, and, yeah. and bring up how you know the Irish and the uh, and some of the native communities have seen some of the same types of oppression and and have um, you know histories that are connected in terms of the the uh, the affinity for the land. So anyway, well, you know there there, there was. Uh, a surprisingly prescient movie back, I guess it was the 80s, in which Robert Redford plays this CIA researcher. It was called Three Days of the Condor. And there's a speech at the end. They, they basically kill off these guys who are figuring out that there's a secret organization within the CIA that's making deals to you know assure the United States is going to be have ample oil and gas available to it, mm-hmm. whatever it took. You know, and and Cliff Robertson at the end of the movie makes this speech to Redford, who's going to report all this to the Times. Pretty much a documentary so far. Almost a documentary, <laughs> right? And Redford, you know, he tells Redford, he says, "You're you, you know, you're just you're a dreamer and you're you're a simpleton because, you know, when push comes to shove, the American people aren't going to care where this oil or gas comes from, just as long as it keeps flowing." And that's absolutely true. It matters not what we do in places like Nigeria or other places. Right. It matters not that. You know there are uh, are pipeline leaks that poison people in yeah. places that they don't live. As long as the oil and gas is there when they want it, then you know anything yeah. anything that's done is, is justified. Hey folks, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, Carol Muffet's going to join us. We're going to be talking about CO two pipelines. Get an update on that. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back again to the Fallon Forum, where as we broadcast from America's Heartland here in Des Moines, Iowa, we are enjoying a 90-degree day in late September. Yeah, we were enjoying that, but also I'm saying, you know, well, maybe uh, maybe climate change is real. Uh, <laughs> actually, we know it is. The few who still haven't figured that out, maybe they might take notice of our weather. Hey, thanks again to those who um, <clears throat> are supporting this program, our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. I would like to welcome to the program Carol Muffet. He's the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. Carol, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, you had a tweet on, uh, on, on, on Twitter. That's what tweets happen these days. We, we have them out in our chicken coop as well. But uh, tweets happen on Twitter, and you recently tweeted to the effect that um, carbon capture and storage technology is a false solution that further entrenches the fossil fuel economy Endangers, endangers communities and enriches the industry. Now, I, I assume that analysis would apply to the two uh, CO2 pipelines that are proposed for the upper Midwest. Yes, uh, it, it applies to, to carbon capture and storage projects across the country. The analysis for individual projects is, you know, 
slightly different on a project by project basis, but the core risks and the core problems with CCS are, are the same. And we're seeing these pipelines proposed all across the U.S. right now. I mean, the, the, the build-out from, what, 5,000 miles of CO2 pipelines, the build-out is proposed to be 65,000, I believe? Yes, and it's really important to recognize that those 5,000 miles of existing CO2 pipelines are overwhelmingly located in the oil and gas fields of West Texas, because CO2 has historically mostly been used just to produce more oil. And what proponent, proponents of this technology are talking about doing is expanding from 5,000 miles to up to 65,000 miles or more, and not putting those pipelines in remote oil fields, but running them through communities across the country. And this is really significant because despite, you know, despite the fact that most people think of CO2 as what makes their fizzy water fizzy, <laughs> in fact, when you compress it down to the pressures that go into these pipelines, it becomes a fundamentally different and a much more hazardous substance. Yeah. Now, one argument made here, we, we've been to some of the public hearings that the uh, company Summit uh, Carbon Solutions, is, they're, they're proposing one pipeline that would be about 700 miles just through Iowa, not including what they would run through Nebraska. Minnesota, South Dakota, and eventually North Dakota. But um, they, and these are again mostly be from ethanol plants, as I'm sure you know. Uh, they argue uh, that this is going to be uh, uh, a benefit to the fight against climate change. And this, the, I guess the argument is, in part, that ethanol is much more friendly environmentally than oil. Better to fuel your car with ethanol than gasoline. How do you, how do you respond to that? I think there are a few fundamental problems with that. One, we have, we have 10 years to cut global greenhouse gas emissions roughly in half if we're to have any hope of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees, which is what scientists tell us is a critical threshold beyond which you know, climate catastrophe becomes irreversible. 10 years. You can't achieve that, that, that timeline by investing in more of the same sorts of fossil fuel infrastructure that got us into this problem in the first place. And so we're not in a place where half measures are going to make a difference. I think even more fundamentally, I think the, the problem is that, is that carbon capture and storage whether it's whether it's based on ethanol or or natural gas is still fundamentally deeply linked to fossil fuel consumption and combustion. My, my understanding of ethanol is that it is primarily blended with 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 gasoline in mixes, which means to use ethanol, you'd still be using gasoline at some substantial scale. Um, and so while that might while the ethanol might be better for the climate, than gasoline, that's only to the extent that it is completely replacing gasoline, and that's only the extent that you're, you're, you're taking fully into account the emissions from the, the agricultural operations, the transport, and the processes that produce that ethanol in the first place. But then when you, when you bring CCS into the mix, um, things become much more complicated. It's really important to recognize that CCS CCS technologies and CCS equipment are extremely energy intensive, which means that you have to use more energy and release more pollutants just to capture the carbon from the plant. You mean building the pipelines themselves? Well, no, I mean just even freezing down CO2 to yeah. make it transportable. Yeah, cap capturing the CO2 from the smokestacks takes energy, and mm -hmm. it, it means more emissions of other sorts of hazardous pollutants from those smokestacks, not just the CO2. Then it takes additional energy to compress the CO2 down and to keep it moving through the pipelines. And one of the things that's really important to note is that there are two things that you can then do with that compressed CO2. As I noted, the vast majority of that captured CO2 has been going into enhanced oil recovery, which means it's being pumped into the ground to pull more oil out which will then be burned and release more carbon. The other thing that you can do with that CO2 is that you can inject it underground into saline aquifers. But if you do that, 
then if you want to avoid earthquakes, if you want to avoid contamination of freshwater aquifers, then you have to pump out brines, uh, produced waters from those aquifers um, to avoid to keep the pressures under control and avoid earthquakes from happening. And those produced waters are themselves often very toxic and at times radioactive. Um, and that means that you're, you're producing yet another massive waste stream with the goal of contributing modestly, if at all, to addressing the climate crisis. Um, and that's an ethanol is a best case scenario. Um, the vast majority of proposals for, for CCS deployment and CO2 pipelines are even worse. Who, who are the big drivers behind this? The major proponents for these technologies are the companies that invented them, which are unsurprisingly oil and gas technology, oil and gas companies. We have a memo from an internal memo from Exxon Oil's uh, Canadian subsidiary from 1980, in which they, that subsidiary recognized that they had this technology even then in 1980 to capture emissions. And they didn't want to deploy it because it was too expensive. The truth is CCS remains expensive to this day. And that's where the government, um, that's where the government comes in, subsidizing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, what you see is, is the industry going to government for billions of dollars in subsidies for this infrastructure, even though it doesn't contribute meaningfully to and, addressing the climate and, crisis. And so what why, it does do is become a new vehicle for billions of dollars in additional supports to oil and gas. So what, why, are there, why are so many Democratic uh, politicians, and including President Biden, why are so many so easily falling in line behind the proposal to take a bunch of our tax money and subsidize this industry? I think that's a really good question, and it's a question that should be addressed to them. And I think at, at the heart is this, you know, at the heart is this belief that, that climate change is something that we can address gradually in the way that if we had begun in 1988 when Joe Biden was first speaking out on these issues, <laughs> we might have been able to address things gradually. Or so he but says, it's not, yes. it's yeah. not 1988 anymore, and what we need is is to transition the economy much more rapidly and the thing is we have the technologies to do that to do it quickly to do it effectively to do it cleanly and i think one of the really important things to ask you know, ask you know democrats and and you know and others who are promoting these technologies is have you looked beyond the carbon to look at the impacts on communities are you looking at what are, what are the impact on communities from the increased emissions what are, the, what are the impacts on communities when pipelines rupture and release a, you know, large amounts of an asphyxiant into, into the local environment? Um, what are the impacts on communities when you pump this stuff into the ground and either release more oil or cause earthquakes? Yeah. And I think those are the questions that really need to be asked and haven't been asked about this infrastructure. Today. Well, we're, we're certainly yeah. trying to ask in here in Iowa. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it, it sounds sexy. It's a technology. So since we don't ever want to conserve or do anything else, um, we love sexy technologies. But it's, it's kind of like the, the, the people who used to stand on the street, you know, talking about nuclear energy. Uh, no matter what they said, there still was no solution to what to do with the waste. So all those control rods sit on properties around the country, completely vulnerable, you know, not in any salt mine because there is no storage. Well, and it's the same thing with Yucca CO2. Didn't want them. All right, it's the same thing with CO2. You went to the meeting, Ed, and you know you asked. They they said, "Oh, this is all going to go to sequestration." Oh, they made they made it really clear that they had no long term commitment to keeping that underground. Right. Uh, they would not. They would not say that it was not going to be used for fracking, which to me means they're going to use it for fracking. Yeah, and I think this is, I think, you know, one of the things that you see is one reason that industry is 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 pushing this and one reason that, you know, low ambition people are, are embracing it is because it's another way of saying we can keep on doing business as usual, not really change anything, but pretend that we're addressing the climate crisis. In reality, what these technologies are going to do is, is perpetuate and accelerate the causes of climate change while adding whole new sources of harms for, for communities yeah. and the environment. Hey, one more question for you, uh, Carol, is uh, 
Up, upcoming, of course, is the uh, COP26 summit, Climate Summit in Glasgow. Um, big expectations. Uh, people are starting to say, well, maybe we shouldn't expect too much. What are, we, uh, what are your expectations relevant to carbon capture and storage uh, coming up in any meaningful way at the summit? I think Glasgow is a testament to, uh, to the importance of these issues. What you're seeing is, is civil society groups across the world are looking at Glasgow as a moment to expose this myth of net zero, this idea that we can go on emitting carbon in one place and make it magically disappear in other places. In reality, the only way to address the climate crisis is to stop the carbon from being emitted at such massive scales in the first place. Yeah. And so I think what we'll see at, I think what we'll see in Glasgow is a real clear emergence of civil society voices from around the world speaking out about these technologies, about the risks they pose, both for the climate and for human rights and, yeah. and human livelihoods. Well, let's hope for the best and, and keep pushing. Uh, Carol, thank you uh, so much for joining us. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Folks, we've been talking with Carol Muffet. He's the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. Uh, back in a minute with uh, Kathy Burns joining us. Again, thanks, Charles, for joining us as the uh, co-host for the first uh, four segments of this program. My pleasure. Kathy Burns is going to join us next, folks. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin, or as we prefer, Seedcoin. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum again. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so Kathy Burns is with me now in the studio. And, you know, I've been trying to sort out the whole Bitcoin, let's call it a controversy, because uh, it's just amazing how much energy Bitcoin uses. But, um, yeah, there's this, there is, um, I mean, Bitcoin has tapped into the hunger for a new currency. Well, maybe, Kathy, what do you think? What about seeds? You know, you know a thing or two about seeds. Well, I don't understand anything about Bitcoin, except I know it's really bad on climate. And... It uh, uses a lot of materials that are not going to be good for the earth. So, um, uh, you know, to me, if it's that bad, it's it's not a good idea so, at all. So, so it uses like rare metals and it also uses a lot of energy just in the transactional component, I think right? so. I'm, I'm reading an article by The Guardian saying a single Bitcoin transaction generates the same amount of electronic waste as throwing two iPhones into the garbage, which, you know, you don't do that. According to a new, that's a single transaction. If people are doing multiple transactions a day, a they just of, keep toss. a lot of cell phones. Toss, toss. Um, so uh, there, there's some specialized computer chip inside it called an ASIC. And they're sold with, they have no other purpose than to run the algorithms that um, make Bitcoin work. And so... <laughs> Uh, the newest chips are, you know, only power efficient enough to last a short time, and they get tossed out and um, and have to be replaced. So, I I don't know. It just sounds really really bad to me. And and I 
there are some ideas floating around there about an alternative. Well, and, and the first the first thing that comes to mind is, well, what's wrong with the current system? What's wrong with, with dollar bills and change and the things that are the equivalent of that, checkbooks, uh, Venmo, credit cards, whatnot? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll answer my own question. Mm-hmm. They're backed by things that really don't matter. Like the gold standard. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and the, the illusion and corporations. that... Well, and the illusion that the federal government is stable, you know. So, yeah, good question. Well, is, there, is there an alternative? It's, the, it's this idea of worth. Yes. In order to get something that you need, you know, to purchase it or to acquire it, the, the polite thing to do is exchange something of equal value for that. So... Uh, there are some folks out there, and it's, 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 not, it's not a bad idea to think about it at least. Just what if seeds were used as currency? Like, like, a, like acorns? Uh, well, <laughs> th- seeds for things that I guess humans want to grow and eat and preserve uh, as far as species um, into the future. So that's just an idea being thrown around out there. Um there, there's, uh, there, there's a good idea about um, using these seeds, and I think it's a better idea than say using guns as, um, as currency, <laughs> well, yeah, which some people are predicting if there's a yeah, collapse. But some of the uh, seed-saving um, passion right now is on the, is on the, in, the, in the survivalist camp. I mean, I've heard this stuff advertised on Glenn Beck's program. Yeah, that that's weird. I mean, we save seeds. Yeah, and we're not. We're not. We survive. Yes, we do. Um, and, and another word not, for survivalists is preppers. Well, we're not hoping to survive a nuclear holocaust or the, well, or the total collapse of the government. The problem with the company that was advertising on Glenn Beck's show was that uh, they're calling survivor seeds. Uh, you know, the the solution to the world's problems in the future. They see an apocalyptic future and uh, crisis garden is another word they're throwing around to fight emerging totalitarianism you know we're not we're not about that we're we're about <laughs> saving seeds and using things for barter in a polite way that helps sustain the earth and each other yeah well yeah and, and like last year when when people were planting more gardens because they had more time and because of concerns relevant to covid and climate it was harder to find seeds. There were shortages of seeds. A lot of places of were sold out. And I think that's where a lot of people started to think survivalist-style seed saving. But, you know, let's just pretend we start using seeds as currency. I mean, kind of a big what if. So you, you need to build up your, your account. You need to grow food and save seeds. Not everybody knows how to do that. There's a big learning yeah. curve. Um, I'm curious, what do you think? Do different seeds carry different values? Like a tomato seed has more value than a pepper seed? I don't know. Uh, I would think that certain plants would command higher uh, higher values, uh, especially if they, they have more value as food, but also if there's more involved in saving them. I mean, for example, mm. any any biennial, mm. like a, a brassica uh, or an onion. Onion would be... Brassica, onion. for folks who aren't familiar with the term, would be like a cabbage. Brussels sprouts, cabbage, yes. cauliflower, mm-hmm. broccoli. Yeah, those are harder. Well, broccoli not. Broccoli is an annual. But again, most of them are harder to save because you got to have a two-year cycle. Mm. So yeah. someone would have to figure out what the values are, and we would all have to agree on that in some way. Yeah, or at but, least you could figure it out with the person that you're making yeah. the transaction but again, with. But again, broccoli, is that really as valuable as, say, a tomato? No. Most people like tomatoes a lot better than they like broccoli. <laughs> Well, for instance, you know, we, we don't we don't have a cow, so we can't we don't? have dairy on this what's on that, our what's, urban what's farm that? here. Oh, you're right. That's not a cow. Um, sorry. <laughs> those are chickens. I get those mixed up. We can't up. milk them. <laughs> um, so if we need to go buy milk, then maybe whoever's growing the cattle or having the dairy farm could use some of our seeds and give us some of their milk. So that mm. might be what. A, and the shelf life of seeds has to be considered too. When you have a quarter. Yeah. It is still a quarter in 30 years. When you have mm-hmm. a, a tomato seed or a right. green bean seed, it's not going to be viable yeah. in maybe three to five years. So, yeah, but in terms of barter uh, and how I'm paying, that, well, so what happens if you want to like pay a, plug the parking meter? I, I would <laughs> so like put to some seeds see in there, that. right? They should have dirt in the parking meter so that <laughs> plant the seeds, and right. put a little water, yeah. and I mean, the, it would be a living garden. I mean, it's downtown. not going to work for some things, obviously. Right. You know? Right. Well, um, you know, uh, ter- whether or not we have seeds as currency, the the point that we like to make as, you know, here on Birds and Bees Urban Farm 
is that learning to grow your own food takes time. Mm -hmm. Learning to save the seeds takes time. The seeds have a certain amount of time that they're good for. So we can't just flip a switch and say, okay, everybody, tomorrow seeds become our currency. Yeah. Because yeah. not everybody knows how to do that. The people who already know how to do it will be the rich ones for <laughs> once. I mean, the bottom line is what you're saying is this is something of great value. Uh, people all, everybody needs to eat ideally three times a day, ideally nutritious food. And, you know, where, where do you, where does that whole thing start? That whole conversation starts with a seed. Oh, it's the seed of thought of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't meant it that way, but I guess, yeah. So Well, um, you know, it, it's also about value. You know, a quarter to me, 25 cents, you know, I guess there's not a lot you can buy with it. But we all agree that a quarter is worth a certain amount in whatever else you're going to buy with it's it. It's worth less now than it used to be. It is. And that's another, yeah, that's another point. Would, would there be inflation in the new seed economy? Yeah. Huh. Well, you know, and it relates too to other 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 things of value in terms of food, land, mm-hmm. um, tools. You can have all the seeds you want, but if you don't have the land, yeah. you, you still maybe you could barter seeds for some land. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, uh, you know, where do you carry them on your day to, in your day to day life too? Well, actually, seeds You're, are seeds are a lot lighter than, uh, than 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 change when you think about it. Well, if they get too warm, <laughs> they they might lose some viability. I mean, you never get wet; they lose viability. I mean, credit card, you can't beat that. That's just always going to be light. But the problem with the credit card is, there's a big company in the middle taking a big cut of it. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us, uh, folks. If we're talking to Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm, uh, thanks to our guest today, Carol Muffet. And to my co-host, Charles Goldman and Kathy Burns. Thanks also to the rest of our production team of Sherry Herdina and Forrest Detterman. And thanks to the local small business partners here in the Des Moines Metro, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our non-profit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. It makes a difference. Sign up for this weekly email. We'll be back with you next week, folks, on the Fallon Forum.